my wife and I had the opportunity to attend the annual meeting of the Baptist Convention of Maryland and Delaware this past Sunday evening into Monday. It was a business meeting, as you would expect, intended for folks in the association to be able to reconnect, to think through issues that affect Maryland and Delaware churches, but it was also intended to be a time of celebration, a celebration of positive changes taking place in the association and in a celebration of milestones throughout the various churches represented in the convention. At one point, they recognized the longest-serving pastors in the association. They also recognized both the youngest and the oldest pastors in the association. I was none of neither of those, by the way. (laughs) Well, they asked him a couple of questions. This dear brother, who was the oldest pastor, he was 88 years of age. And he had been serving in his church for 40 years, which wasn't the longest tenure in the role, by the way. Well, they asked him a couple of questions, and both of his answers to those questions were a great encouragement to me. They asked him first, essentially, what advice would he give to pastors coming after him in light of his lengthy tenure? He didn't really hesitate when he said that he would tell them to understand that success is not the goal in ministry. Really, he said, to throw the word success out the door. It wasn't about numbers, meaning the number of people you had in your ministry. And it certainly wasn't about the amount of salary that you were paid. But rather, the goal of ministry was to be faithful to God. We all understand that it is true. But it's certainly encouraging to hear from a seasoned, well-established servant in the Lord. Success is not the goal. Faithfulness is. The other question that he was asked is the one that stuck with me the most. The other question was, what would you still like to see happen in your ministry? What would you like to see continue long after you're gone? And again, I think without missing a beat, he said he would like to see a spirit of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, persisting in the church. A spirit of unity. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul encourages the church to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Unity. Again, after some 40 years of ministry, over which time I'm sure this brother has preached on unity multiple times, he said, this thing is still important. This one thing should still remain long after I'm gone. The church should persist in unity. I think that's significant. It's significant not only because Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 is part of the section that we're going to cover this morning, It's significant because I think that Christ would agree. Yes, the church has a mission. The great commission has been left for the church. Christ commanded that we make disciples of all nations. That is a central task of the church, to make disciples. But how are we to do that? How can we do that? How can we do that if we're not unified? Coming off of our study from last week, we were reminded that unity is something that God creates. It's not something that we can manufacture on our own. We need the power of God through the Spirit of God to be unified. God creates and sustains unity within the church. It's designed in the very fabric of the church. Paul has been discussing the design of the church and his power at work in the church over the course of the first three chapters in Ephesians. He laid the groundwork for what he's about to discuss there. Often this is the pattern in Paul's letters. 
He'll lay out the doctrine before discussing our duty. He'll explain the principles before expounding on the practice. Belief always leads to behavior. God is at work building his church. His attention, his focus, his power is directed at the church. The same power that was at work in raising Jesus Christ from the dead, seating him in the heavenly places above all others, is at work in the church. It's been at work in the church to raise her from spiritual death to life, to bring peace between ethnically diverse peoples, to bring peace between them and God. That power was at work in his apostles to help build the church. That power is at work in our prayers for the church to know his power and to know his love. Now Paul says as he transitions into chapter 4 of Ephesians, now since we know that these things are true, we ought to live like it. Similar to what we saw from Paul in chapter 1 of the Philippians, Paul will say now in Ephesians, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We have ultimately been called to unity, and he will remind us of the basis of our unity in, chapter, in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 4, and the purpose for our unity in verses 7 through 16. And from there on, through the end of the letter of Ephesians, he will discuss in more practical terms what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. The term walk will be a theme through the end of the letter. Well, this morning we will focus in on chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, where again we'll see the basis for our unity. I'll read the entire section for us this morning, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. But again, we're just going to focus on verses 1 through 6 this morning. Let's look at the text, Ephesians chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host captive, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the winds and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
Father, again, we come before you as we approach your word and we pray that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. Well, again, in the previous section, I asked the question, how can we be unified and accomplish the purposes of God? And the answer was a prayer for the power of God to work among us. The question in this section is, why are we unified? What is the reason for our unity in Christ? Why even ask the question, how? The reason for our unity in Christ, the reason why we are exhorted to be unified, or as Paul put it, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, is ultimately because of the unity that is in God. God is one. Therefore, he creates us as one and calls us to act as one. We'll see in these six verses that we are to walk in a manner worthy, meaning, again, we are to pursue unity. We are to do it in this manner, first, obediently, in verse 1. Second, considerately, in verse 2. Third, eagerly, in verse 3. And fourth, the culmination of his argument, we are to walk reverently. We are to walk in a manner worthy. We are to pursue unity. We do this obediently, considerately, eagerly, and then reverently. Let's look at that first point in verse 1. We are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We are to walk obediently. Look again at the text. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We know that whenever we see a therefore in the text, it is intended to encourage us to think about what came before. This is a logical conclusion based on what came before. It may not be the final conclusion, but it is a logical conclusion based on what came before. The therefore harkens back to the previous section and really all of what Paul has said previously. Again, in the previous section, Paul prays for the church to be empowered to know the love of God so that they could love one another ultimately for his glory. The church exists to pursue his purposes, to bring glory to him. He has lavished us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He has poured out his immeasurably great power upon us. He has raised us from spiritual death into life. He has united us in one body as one new race of humanity called the church for the express purpose of bringing glory to himself. Therefore, we ought to live worthy of that calling. That is the primary exhortation in this section. He urges them again, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We frequently discuss the idea of what it means to walk. Very simply, it is a term intended to describe the character of one's life. How you live is how you walk. He is saying that you ought to walk or live in such a way that is worthy of your calling. The idea behind the word worthy, it means something like suitably. Or, more literally, bringing up the other beams of the scales, as some have said. Bringing something into equilibrium. Making something equivalent. You may think of the term suitability. In other words, the character of your life, your manner of living, should be brought into balance. It should be equivalent to your calling. The idea of calling is fairly simple. God has called us to himself in salvation. He's called us for a particular purpose. 
Calling has that connotation that there is a purpose. We are not to be inactive. We're not to sit. We're called to serve. Generally speaking, I think that's a good question for all of us to consider. If you take a moment and think back over your life, maybe over this past week, this past month, have you, believer, been living in a way that is equivalent to your calling as a Christian? You have been saved by grace through faith. You have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. God prepared good works for you to walk in them. That's Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Have you been doing that? Have you been living that way? We all have to answer that question. We all should give careful thought and prayer to that answer. Now back to the text, the idea in the context of Paul's urging here, really pleading with them to walk in a manner that is consistent with, equivalent to their calling, again refers to his prior discussion. They've been called into this new body, this one new man. They've been called to peace within the body, this one new man. They've been called and set apart for the purposes of God to bring glory to him in this new body. This is thinking corporately about the body of Christ, the question is, are they living like it? Are they living that way? He urges them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling into this new unified body, the church, which is set apart for the glory of God. He says, be unified for his glory in pursuit of his glory. That is your calling in Christ. You need to live like it. He calls them again to walk this way obediently. Obediently, meaning that they should be willing to walk in the footsteps of those who have gone on before them, particularly Paul's own footsteps. As we saw in chapter 2, the apostles were foundational to the church. They were foundational in their teaching as well as their example. Paul is calling upon this truth now to encourage them in their walk. Look again, he says, I urge you, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He says, this is who I am. Again, Paul identified himself primarily with respect to his calling in Christ. You know, the first thing that people say about themselves tells you a lot about what they think about who they are. It tells you a lot about their priorities. How do people introduce themselves to you? How do you introduce yourself to others? Paul said, I am an apostle in chapter 1. He says, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus in chapter 3. And here again, he calls himself a prisoner for the Lord. He understood that to be his calling. He was called to suffer. He was called to live life for this purpose. It is as if, just as we looked at previously in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, where he said, I don't consider my life of any account as dear to myself, but that I may finish my race to accomplish what Christ has called me to do, to testify solemnly to his grace. He says, that's why I'm in prison. That's why I see myself as a prisoner, not of the state, but of the Lord. That was my calling. And the point that he's making here in Ephesians is that the Ephesians should also see their life of no account as dear to themselves, but that they may finish the course and the ministry that Christ has given them, that they may walk in a manner worthy of his calling as unified in pursuit of his glory. Paul says, I am living in a manner cons consistent with, equivalent with my calling as an apostle. 
I was called to suffer. I was called to preach. I was called as an apostle to the Gentiles. And you see that happening in my life. You do likewise. He urges them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling obediently. Second, he urges them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling considerately. Look again at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. We said in the previous section that in order to have unity, we need the power of God. And we get the power of God through the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is indwelling in us. That is indicative of God's sovereignty in our salvation. He is at work in us, powerfully at work in us through his Holy Spirit. But we still have a responsibility to act. These verses here remind us of our responsibility. As we seek the power of God in prayer, we are urged to walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Oh, humility is pretty clear, right? It's hard to do, but it's clear. It's the opposite of pride. It's the opposite of boasting, considering oneself superior to another. In Christ, all boasting is excluded because apart from Christ, we're all what? We're all sinners. Dirty, rotten, stinking sinners deserving only of God's judgment. That's who we are apart from Jesus. Conversely, in Christ, we have all experienced the grace of God. We've all experienced the riches of his kindness. We've all experienced his mercy. We've all experienced his power in raising us from spiritual death to life. No one in Christ is excluded from this. None of us got here on our own, in our own strength, by our own goodness. Therefore, there is absolutely zero room for pride in the body of Christ. No one is better than another. He says humility, and he also says gentleness. Gentleness is the opposite of roughness. We ought to be gentle with one another in the body of Christ for the same reason that we ought to be gentle with those in our own homes. We're family. We're brothers and sisters. You may be tempted to treat a stranger poorly or to speak to them roughly because you'll never likely see them again. The family you see daily, you sleep under the same roof, you eat the same food, you live with them, so it is in your best interest as much as it is for their good to treat them well. You're gentle with your family. Again, in the context of Jew-Gentile relations, which is part of what Paul is addressing here in the text, this humanly speaking mixed audience, there will be relational issues that arise from time to time. And it would be easy to treat the other person, the non-Jewish person, or the non-Gentile person, it would be easy to treat them differently because they're not like me in one sense. Paul says, no, you need to treat them as family because you are family. You have all been adopted into God's family. Again, that's why we call each other brother and sister. That's why we don't hold each other at arm's length, but we hold each other close. That's why we ought to engage. That's why we ought to know when others aren't here. That's why we ought to be calling when others aren't here, when we don't see them. When we see a need, we ought to be quick to meet that need and not think that's somebody else's problem. Because we're family. Because you would do that for a brother or sister in your home. So you ought to do that for a brother or sister in God's home. He says, treat them like family, with gentleness. And gentleness is not to be confused with weakness. I like this quote. 
adding a little bit of nuance to the word. The word never connotes the idea of weakness. Rather, it implies a conscious exercise of self-control, exhibiting a conscious choice of gentleness as opposed to the use of power for the purpose of retaliation. The term is used of the taming and training of animals. For instance, controlled by the master's will, a well-trained dog is always angry at the master's foes and never angry at the master's friends. Only the person who's controlled by the Spirit of God can truly be gentle, angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. We ought to be gentle with one another. There is a time and a place to be angry about sin. But we ought not to be unrighteously, ungodly angry about sin in an ungodly way, that is. And he qualifies these terms by all, all humility and gentleness, meaning that it should be that way to a great degree. We should have great humility and great gentleness. And again, not just in word, right? We're not going around with humble badges on. That's not the point but we ought to be humble in our thinking towards one another. And we ought to be gentle in our dealing with one another. Moving on, he says, with all humility and gentleness and with patience. The word in the original is macrothumia. It's a compound word. Macro, we know, right? Something that is great, something that is big. The second part is thumos. It has to do with heat, something that is boiling or perhaps passionate. Put it together, you take something that takes a long time or it takes a great deal to boil over. Patience. We get the idea of long suffering from this. Being patient means that you're not quick to become angry. There may be a circumstance or a person who offends you, and by all accounts, you may be right to be offended. Nevertheless, you are not quick to respond in anger. Again, in the context of this mixed group, there will be circumstances and interactions that cause you to become offended. But a believer should never be the kind of person to tell another believer off. A believer should never be the kind of person to be quick to respond in anger towards another. We're called here to be patient, to be slow to anger. God is slow to anger with us. He says we are to be humble, we are to be gentle, we are to be patient, bearing with one another in love. We should be patient, bearing with one another in love. We have the phrase, bear with me, right? We're asking someone to tolerate an otherwise disagreeable situation for our sake. Bear with me. Christians are to bear with one another. In the context of the body of Christ, as we engage with one another, we are to bear with one another's shortcomings. We are to bear with one another's idiosyncrasies. We are to bear with one another's lack of sanctification in one area or another, remembering that we are not sanctified in every area of our lives. Yes? We talked about the qualitative difference between the love of the world and the love of God. The love of the world says, accept me and celebrate me however I am. The love of God says that we are to bear with one another precisely because we are imperfect for the sake of God's love. In order for the love of God to shine forth in us and through us, we ought to bear with one another's shortcoming. 
The love of God gives. It sacrifices. It seeks the greatest good of another. Therefore, it is willing to deal with, to bear with the faults of another in order to be able to give love as a response. Again, Jesus' words in John 15, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. God is at work in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. His power is at work in us through his Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If that is true, then we can be patient, we can forbear, we can love no matter what. We've all heard someone say, Perhaps we've said it ourselves. I can't get along with so-and-so. I just can't do it. Well, if you're a Christian and they're a Christian, that is a lie. You can. You are choosing not to. We have the same spirit, and the spirit does not fail. Thus, you can get along with them. You can love them. You're choosing not to. You are being willingly disobedient to the command of Scripture when you fail to love When you're unwilling to love, unwilling to bear with the weakness of others, unwilling to be gentle, unwilling to be humble. You're fighting against the power of God that is at work in us and rejecting the resource of the Holy Spirit that he's given us. Paul says here, we are to be considerate of others. And you're dealing with one another as you seek to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You are to strive for unity, humbly, gently, patiently, Bearing with one another in love. Moving on, he says, we are called to be unified again for the glory of God. We're called to walk in a manner worthy being unified. We are to do so obediently, considerately. Thirdly, we're to do so eagerly. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, he says. The word translated eager means to be especially conscientious in discharging an obligation. To be zealous to take pains, to make every effort. There's a sense of urgency in the term. This is something that you should make every effort to do. It ought to be a focus for you. It ought to be a priority, an imperative must. We must be eager to do what? We must take pains to do what? Make every effort to do what? He says to maintain or keep, preserve, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Listen, again, the unity of the Spirit is something that we already have. We are already unified in the Spirit. All of what he said up to this point points to that truth. We have unity in the Spirit. We just need to maintain it. We need to keep it. We need to tend to it. We need to care for it. We need to see that it is taken care of. And we must be diligent in doing so. We must be quick to do so. We must make every effort to do so, to make sure that the unity of the Spirit is maintained. The world is striving to be at peace. The world is hoping to create peace from unrest. The church doesn't have to do that. God has already made peace in the church through his son, the Lord Jesus. We've gone through that when we looked at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he himself, Jesus, he himself is our peace who made the two into one and reconciled us both to God in one body. The death of Christ on the cross is what brings peace between us and God, and the death of Christ on the cross is what gives peace within the church. 
We are all equally beloved of God, equally redeemed by God, equally recipients of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He is our peace. He is the one who established peace among his people. We never need to create peace within the church. We simply need to maintain it. That ought to be our attitude always. We ought to always be eager to do whatever is necessary to maintain the peace that we have in the body of Christ. He says it is sealed with the bond of peace. His Holy Spirit seals us with the bond of peace. As much as God has granted peace and unity to his church, again, we have the responsibility to preserve it. Paul prayed for our unity in Ephesians In chapter 3, at the end there, Jesus also prayed for our unity in John 17. We've referred to this passage before. John 17, 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 20, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus was interested in, invested in, concerned for the unity of the church. He prayed for that. He bled and died for that. Jesus' prayer for the church was not for her best life now. It was not for her wealth and prosperity. It was not even for her ability to do the most social good. It was for unity. He says, this is how they will know, this is how the world will know that you sent me and that you love them. It's when they're unified. This is the will of God for his people, thus we ought to be diligent about pursuing unity. I like this quote here. One author says, if we are quick to get angry, we need to work on patience. If we have a tendency to be proud, arrogant, egocentric, and boastful, and who doesn't struggle with these? We need to work on humility. If we are insensitive, bullish at times, rough, bossy, or quick to impose on others, we need to work on gentleness. If we struggle with being intolerant with the shortcomings of other people, we need to work on bearing with one another in love. If unity among fellow believers in our local church is not a priority for us, we need to make it a priority. If the ardent pursuit of unity between churches in our cities is not a priority to us, we need to make it a priority. Pray, pray, pray that the Lord would make this true of us. Well, again, we're looking at Paul's exhortation, urging for us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. To the point of Ephesians, we are to walk as a people unified by God for the glory of God. We should do so obediently. 
looking at the example of those who've gone on before us, we should do so considerately, being humble, gentle, patient, and forbearing. We should do so eagerly, making every effort to ensure that we preserve the unity that God has given to us in Christ. And to that end also, he says in verses 4 through 6, we should do so reverently. And this is the culmination of his argument. It's all been leading to this. This is ultimately the basis for our unity. Our unity, our oneness is intended to reflect the unity and oneness of God. Look again at the text, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Just a few quick observations. Some have suggested that this was perhaps an early creedal statement of some kind based on its construction. Whether that's true or not, it is intended, I think, by Paul to, to reflect some of the essential truths of the faith, particularly involving our unity. Others have suggested that the sevenfold use of the term one is influenced by Paul's Jewish background. Seven is associated with the seventh day of creation is often considered to be a number of completion. Paul will refer to also in this text each member of the Trinity, the Spirit, the Lord, and the Father. The fact that all three are involved makes it a complete work of the Godhead. The order appears to be reversed than what we would normally expect, right? We'd usually expect to see the Father listed first, as in chapter 1. Here the order is likely reversed for emphasis. The Spirit and his work are essential for the composition of the church, even the unity of the church, as he's been discussing. So he, he takes a look at the, the Spirit's work and then kind of builds from there. Now there are seven ones, but three triplets as we look at these few verses. And there are three different aspects of the ministry of each member of the Trinity that are mentioned. We see the ministry of the Holy Spirit in verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. There is only one body. Paul has made that clear in this letter already. Again, chapter 2, verse 14. He himself is our peace who made us both one. And reconciles us both to God in one body. We are one in Christ. We are brought together into one body in Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. In the context, Paul is focusing on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He has been throughout the letter. The Spirit is, as we've said many times before, the one who regenerates us. He helps to get, bring new life to us. He seals us. He is our guarantee. He strengthens us. He unites us together as we are, again, being made together into a dwelling of God by the Spirit, chapter 2, verse 22. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, for we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. He says back in our text also that we were called to one hope of our calling. Paul discussed the hope of the believer in chapter 1, verse 18. Our hope is an expecting hope. It's not a hope of wishful thinking. I hope to get this job. I hope my favorite sports team wins today. That's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is based on the expectation that God will do what he said he will do. Again, we have the, the Holy Spirit as a down payment to guarantee our hope, our final redemption. The second of the triplets is found in verse 5 where we see the ministry of the Son. He says we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. We have one Lord. That's the primary confession of the church 
in repudiation of the confession of those who worship Caesar in Rome, they would say, Caesar is Lord. The Christian, to the contrary, would say, Jesus Christ is Lord. We've discussed again in chapter 1 that it's the will of the Father that all things be united in him, in Christ. All things be summed up in him. All things be brought into subjection to him, to Jesus Christ as Lord. That's ultimately the will of God the Father. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess this truth. That day is coming. But in the meantime, God is setting apart a people for himself today, a people who will together confess today that Jesus Christ is Lord. We're not waiting until the end. There is one Lord and one faith. We have only one faith to which we cling. There is only one faith that we receive by grace. Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is this faith alone that leads to our justification before God. It is this faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, the one who is Lord over all, that saves. He alone is the one who, according to, again, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the faith, as Jude said, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is faith in our one Lord. We have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's always a lot of discussion when you see the word baptism anywhere in the Bible. People kind of go crazy. Um, I think the most reasonable way to understand Paul's reference to baptism here is with respect to Christ himself. Again, there are three triplets. He was talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now he's talking about the ministry of the Son. And so this baptism has to do with our baptism into Christ. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. I'll leave you to that. But that's a good passage to kind of think through what that baptism into Christ looks like. Colossians also has a very similar discussion. There Paul says we have been buried with him in baptism in which we were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. There's another passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, where Paul makes reference to the baptism of Christ. The point is that we have been baptized into Christ. Spiritually, we have been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's really why we baptize by immersion, to show, to indicate by that physical act of going down under the water and coming back up That physical act of baptism by immersion is intended to reflect the spiritual act of our being spiritually put into the grave with Christ. We've died with him. And we're spiritually raised again to new life, being united with Christ. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and those are all ours in Christ. The third and final triplet is found in verse 6, where we see the ministry of the Father. He is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We've frequently spoken of the fatherhood of God. He is the Father to all who have come to faith in him through Christ. Yes, there is a general sense in which God has a fatherly relationship to all those he's made as creator. We discussed that in chapter 3. Paul references the fact that every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from him. But here in chapter 4, I believe he's speaking primarily with reference to the church into the familial relationship that we have with him now in Christ. 
Again, the point of this section is to illustrate why our unity matters. It matters because we have all one Father. He is the Father who is over all, meaning he is the sovereign ruler. He is through all, meaning he works his purposes through his people. He is in all, meaning he is near to us. We are his dwelling place in the spirit. He is the one to whom praise is directed as he opened the storehouses of heaven, as we saw in chapter 1, and poured out on us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He is the one who chose us and predestined us for adoption. He is the one who set us apart to bring him glory in Christ. He is the one to whom we pray for wisdom, to know the hope of our calling. He is the one to whom we pray for strength to be able to love one another as he does. He is our heavenly father and all glory is due to him. The mystery of the Trinity is not something that Paul directly expounds on here in the text, but it's clearly on his mind. All three members of the Trinity are involved here. All three members of the Trinity are involved in God's acts of creation on some level or another, even at the very beginning. And we saw this when we look, looked at Genesis chapter 1 earlier. We saw God presiding over his creation from the very beginning. I would take that to be his father. We saw the spirit hovering over the face of the waters in the beginning, likely doing the work of shaping and molding as God's commands go forth. And we saw the word of God, the word of God who would be made flesh. We saw the word going forward as God was creating all things through him. The Trinity is a mystery. But it's not a mystery that we can ignore or dismiss. God exists in three persons, three distinct persons, three distinct roles, and yet all one true and living God. Unity and diversity at its finest, that is who God is. When it came to the creation of humanity in the beginning, God declared, let us make man in our own image. And so he made them male and female. They were together made in the image of God, one unified humanity, yet diverse in person. Likewise, when it comes to the new humanity, the new race, the new body created in the image of God, created anew in Christ Jesus, when it comes to this new race of humanity, we see all members of the Trinity again in action. Described both in Ephesians 1 and here with their distinct roles, but unified. Unified together, again, creating this new race who are made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who are made up of both Jew and Gentiles, but brought together in one body. Those who have been called to one body, one spirit, one hope, under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, under one God and Father, who's over all and through all and in, and in all, and yet who, as we will see in the next section, are given a diversity of gifts to be able to bring glory to him. Again, Jesus prayed for this. He prayed for the oneness of the body of Christ, knowing the diversity that would be there. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them. This is why we must get the church right. This is why we must do church right. This is why regenerate church membership is essential. This is why we must call those Christian who not only profess faith, but who also possess faith. Those who not only speak of their union with the people of God, but who seek to live out that union with the people of God. The people of God are those unified by God for the glory of God. We have an organic unity, a familial unity, even in the midst of such great diversity, humanly speaking. 
We are unified but diverse, and that diversity, with all of the unity that God creates, is how we glorify him as we reflect his character, his person. Those who do not come, those who do not show the new life of God abiding in them, they must be called to account. And we must be striving to ensure that we are walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. That is, we are to be unified. We are to pursue unity obediently, following in the footsteps of those who have gone before us in a faith, considerately, with humility, gentleness, patience, forbearing with one another in love, eagerly desiring to maintain the unity of the Spirit and reverently seeking to honor the glorious unity and diversity of the Trinity in our community. This is the kind of church we ought to be as the Catonsville Baptist Church. This is the kind of church we ought to be praying that we would be as the Catonsville Baptist Church because this is the kind of church that brings glory to our glorious God. As my dear brother, the 88-year-old pastor, desired for his church, may this be true of us, that there continually abides in us a spirit of unity for the glory of God. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for your word, which is true, your word which sanctifies us. Thank you for the unity that you create within us in the body of Christ, for the love that you have poured out in us through Christ, the love that you give us to one another. Thank you for how you are shaping and molding us more to the image of your son, that you have in your heart, in your heart's desire, that we would be mature, that we would grow to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Thank you for what you have instructed here in your word so that we may pursue unity, eagerly pursue unity. And I pray that you would make that true of us in Christ's name. Amen.